Hi there, House Culture listener. If you enjoy this episode or have enjoyed listening to other episodes in our series, please support and donate to us through the Acast Supporter feature. All donations will help us create the content that you love listening to. You can decide how much you give and there is no regular commitment. So it could be a one-off and every now and then or once every time you listen. It's really up to you. Click on the supporter link in the episode description and with Google or Apple Pay, it will take you less than 30 seconds to make your contribution. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs, no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Greg Wilson, and you're listening to the House Culture Podcast. House Culture. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the House Culture Podcast. I'm your host and managing editor at House Culture, Matt Rouse. Thanks for joining us, streaming or downloading, but most importantly, listening. Hopefully you're back once again. But if this is your first time tuning in, where have you been? We at House Culture are a collective of house music fans who have come together through their mutual love of the beat to celebrate the spirit of house music. You can get your daily fix of all things house culture on our Instagram feed at housecultureNet. As you can see with this podcast, we've already built up a hefty back catalogue of iconic characters from the scene who have all been happy to sit down for a candid chat to tell us how this thing called house music has shaped their life. Speaking of icons, in this very special episode, I am so proud to say we chat with legendary DJ Greg Wilson, the first person to mix together two records live on television. Seriously, check that out on YouTube. This is a man who takes his profession very seriously, and rightly so. As you'll hear in this podcast, Greg has been studying the DJ profession from a very young age. I left school as a professional DJ, you know, that was my job. I never had a normal job at all. And, you know, I remember looking through a, an old list of dates I did from back then, and there was, a, I remember seeing a period of about three months where I think I only had one or two nights off. It was every night. How when Electro first blew up, he was in exactly the right place at the right time. The whole thing explodes, and I find myself in possession of the two biggest club nights in this half of the country. Just what it was like hosting a regular night at a pre-acid house era hacienda. The DJ booth was in a room to the side of the stage. 
that was where you looked out of a slat and saw people's legs. And describes what his main aim was for his triumphant comeback to the DJ scene. When I came back into this, I was sure of one thing, and that was that I didn't want to be Mr. Nostalgia playing the golden hits. That was not what I was about. And so the edits allowed me to play older stuff in a contemporary fashion and also plug in other things into that to keep that kind of freshness to it. So just like one of Greg's sets, this is an epic one that will take you on a journey, maybe down a few avenues you didn't quite expect, but by the end of it, you'll be in a much more knowledgeable place. Enjoy. House Culture. Now, Greg, it's great to chat to you. Thanks for finding the time for us in your no very busy schedule. Uh, we're sat here in the basement green room of the Old Queen's Head in Islington before you take to the decks tonight in a couple of hours. Um, that is where we are right now, but what we want to do is kind of start at the beginning for you, for your journey in music. Mm-hmm. Um, what sticks out for you in your mind about first discovering music and having like emotional reaction to it? Well, I, I come from a seaside town uh, called New Brighton, which is across the River Mersey from Liverpool, and it used to be a well, it used to be a holiday resort. Uh, it, when I was a kid, it was still like a day trip resort, and people came over on the ferries from Liverpool and came in from different places and there was a fairgrounds, there was a big swimming pool, there was a beach. So there was music always around from from the fairgrounds and and stuff like that and people playing transistor radios, they sunbathed and and also I lived in, um, it was a pub and functions rooms, they did like, you know, like weddings 21st, those kind of parties. And so, you know, within the pub there was a jukebox, uh, there were mobile discos coming out, in and out every weekend uh, into these functions rooms, and I'd kind of sit there with my mum and the bottle of coke and hear all these DJs playing and hear the music. So, and, and then further to that, perhaps the main influence was that I had an elder brother and sister who were both buying singles and fortunately for me they were buying like all the great soul records of the 60s like on labels like Motown and Stax Atlantic and the reggae label Trojan and so all these singles were coming into my world as well. I'd eventually inherit them, I'd kind of take them you know, myself. So all this was happening before you know, I was 10, you know I mean? Wow. Uh, I did have an appreciation of music by that point, you know, certainly black music and I had a, a deep emotional resonance. I mean, a lot of the struggle from the black side I understood through the music and, um, you know, tracks like A Ball of Confusion by The Temptations and, um, you know, even uh, like Patches, Clarence Carter, these songs talked about the struggle of, of black people and talked about the times in, in which people live. Change is going to come, of course, Sam Cook, these types of of songs and they did resonate with me and, and one major thing that at a very early age that I, I remember kind of formulating it within myself was at the time there was obviously a lot of racism and black people were seen as lesser in some sort of way and from my youthful standpoint I, I couldn't um, square that because how could they make this music how could they be doing this yeah 
So um, it, it was more than just liking music. There was something else going on within that that kind of touched me. And that, that was the soul music. You know, that was my first great love. Yeah. I just listened to those records over and over and over, you know, and um, you know, they're just part of my psyche now, you know, they're in there. And that was before you were 10 years old, pretty much. Well, yeah, I mean, I started like, actually buying records when I was 11. Um, I mean, I'd acquired records before then. As I said, we had a jukebox in the pub and um, the jukebox man used to come round every month or so to change the records. And if I was about and I could see him, I could generally grab a few of the records that he was changing from him. So, you know, I, I, I'd do that as well. But eventually, you know, I mean, I kind of started to collect myself. And, um, you know, so by the age of 13, 14, I had a, a pretty decent seven-inch single collection when I think of it. So at 15, when I started to play in clubs, yeah. you know, I, I was already stocked up musically and, yeah. uh, you know, I knew where I was at. So you were quite ahead of the curve in terms of when you first got those decks and you had that massive collection that you just wanted to share with people. Well, it, I mean, I say massive, it wasn't massive. It was it was enough to actually go out and, and, and play initially, you know. Um, it was massive for somebody of my age. Yeah. Um, although I had a friend who was the same age and he was like really into electronics and um, he was also into records and we met at school and stuff. And he built a mobile disco for himself. He, he had a... Uh, somebody who lived around the corner who was a mobile DJ and he saw what he had and how it all fitted together and he built his own his first one he, he um he did it within this old drawer right. and they were literally two old record players yeah. there was a switch between one deck and the other deck there was no there was no kind of faders and crossbow yeah. or anything yeah. like that it was very rudimentary but you know impressive for me at the time and I eventually when he upgraded he, he then built another console which was really good and the third console and when he got his third console I bought the second with another mate and we set up as a mobile disco yeah but I only did that for a few months um, because I landed a, a job in a local club um, I was actually upstairs in the function room doing the mobile and the DJ hadn't turned up and they said can one of you do downstairs and a lot of clubs at the time had their own records yeah so that wasn't an issue you know that I could take a few from upstairs but they had most of and I did that night and, and on the back of that I got offered uh, it was a Saturday night as well Saturday night residency and it was a place called the Chelsea Reach um, and further down the road was an, another club called the Penny Farthing and no sooner had I started the Chelsea than the Penny offered me a few nights there and so so how old were you at that? 15. Stage? Wow. And so you weren't even really old enough to be in these places. No, and they did at one point suss it all out. And there was a moment where I thought that it was all going to fall through. But then they came back and said, you can't work here as long as you don't drink. Yeah. And to be honest, they turned a blind eye to that as well. <laughs> um, so it, it all went out fine. So at the time when really I should have been studying for O-levels and that kind of thing, I was working six, seven nights a week in, in clubs, uh, you know, it really escalated. So the, I left school as a professional DJ, you know, I was, that was my job. I never had a normal job at all. And, and you know, I remember looking through a, an old list of dates I did from back then. And there was, a, I remember seeing a period of about three months where I think I only had one or two nights off. You wow. Know. It was every night. Yeah. It wasn't like now where you kind of, you tour or whatever or you do the weekends uh, yeah. you know it was because back then like the pubs were closed at 
10 30. yeah so still there's people wanted to have a drink later so that's where the clubs came in and yeah. and a lot of the more interesting nights happened midweek you know the more experimental things yeah were where, so were you playing the same style of music every night was it a different style every night or how were you kind of approaching those well back then it was the music that was played in the type of clubs I, I'm in a small backwater place really yeah. in a sense and so the, the music by and large was what was in the charts and that's what people played or and alongside oldies I mean I, I always had a yen for like bringing in newer records um, and so that was my thing I wanted to be the DJ that you heard the stuff first and, and another thing that kind of set me apart was I, had a, I bought a book and, and there used to be a DJ on Radio 1 called Emperor Roscoe and he did a few albums which were like compilations of Atlantic Soul tracks and you know it was great and he had this book and I, I bought this book I would have been what 16 and in the back of it was a list of all the record company addresses and I realized that record companies had things called promotions departments where they were servicing DJs with stuff before it was released and so I really embraced that I contacted everyone uh, and within probably 12 months I was on every mailing list that there was you know all the big labels I was receiving all this you know all the new UK releases six weeks in advance you know often you know of, of, of the release in this country and I was then going to London and meeting all the people who worked in the club departments and getting stuff even quicker because I get it direct from source before they'd done the mail out sometimes <laughs> and and so that's the approach that I took that was different I suppose to my contemporaries yeah. whereas they'd gone by the records at the shops as normal but I'd already kind of stepped ahead of that. So if I was buying records, it was moving more into imports. I yeah. didn't need the British records. Yeah. So it was looking to what was coming in from the States. And, and quite early on, I was, you know, even as I say, when I was 16, I remember buying imports of uh, Parliament's album, Mothership Connection, which was a revelation to me. Brass Construction's first album, which was a huge, huge and very influential record. It's kind of been lost through time, but as a funk, you know, kind of, a lot of British bands like High Tension and Light of the World took their cues off that album. And so, you know, I was supplementing the music that I was playing with newer and newer music till eventually, um, you know, I, well, you mentioned with the nights always the same. I, the first kind of specialist night I did was in a club called the Penny Farthing, which on the Monday night, it was a funk night, so it was specifically geared towards more kind of newer music and um, taking away that kind of pop element that you might have to inject, you know, into, into the weekend. But it wasn't until I got to the next club that I worked at, and I started there when I was 17. It was actually next door to this place, the Penny Farthing, called the Golden Guinea but it was the better club the people who went to the Guinea were into the in the penny and, and the ones that got knocked back from the Guinea were the ones that went to the penny it was that kind of thing so I'd kind of moved up to a you know supposedly better crowd certainly you know within it it enabled me to really set my scene and that's what I managed to do there that I, I then built my reputation this you would hear the music first here and eventually Blues and Soul magazine which was a big concern back then you know like um, on a national level and had DJ charts in which I contributed to myself and they sent the, the, the kind of club correspondence and they did a glowing piece about 
my little club, you know, and Amazing. the Golden Guinea was the club where I was able to bring that to fruition yeah. and have my own little local scene. I loved it there, you know, I had a great time and I knew lots of people, but I also was aware that I needed to move on in terms of developing a, a real career within this um, to step to a next level and, and back then the next level was um, radio that's what everyone was aiming at to get on the radio you didn't have a situation where DJs toured or anything like anything like now although what there was was a, a specialist what was then called jazz funk scene where the music that was played was the black music strands of soul, funk, disco mm. uh, but also the jazzier element Roy Ayers type stuff Lonnie Liston Smith um, you know these kind of Ronnie Laws these kind of artists uh, um, Herbie Hancock, um, and then even more kind of out-and-out -out jazz tracks. Um, and this was a very specialist scene that existed throughout the country, but was really kind of, there's north and there was south. So in the north, there were all dayers where the top DJs from different areas came together on a Sunday or a bank holiday Monday, and it was an all-day event, and they all played, you know, their own spots. And the same thing happened in London. The two didn't generally, although there was some kind of crossover. And that was the specialist scene and that's what I aspired to yeah. I wasn't at that point yet and it wasn't something you could just walk into you don't you didn't just announce yourself you had to earn your spurs in one way or the other so was there a, um, a kind of roster of big name DJs within that scene that you were looking at and thinking yeah, I aspire to be like those guys or did you think I can carve my own path into this well there were two aspects to this. Initially in Liverpool, I went to a club called The Timepiece in 1976. Again, I was 16, and it was a predominantly black club. And the DJ there was a guy called Les Spain, and he had massive respect within the Liverpool DJ community. The DJ stood around his booth with pads taking down tracks, and he was so gracious with it. He'd tell them what the tracks were. He was so confident that next week he'd have more. <laughs> brilliant and, and I, I walked into this environment and I'd never been in an environment where I was you know in the minority as a white person and you know it was kind of electric from that aspect you know I, I wasn't sure if I was safe um, but the dancing and the music everything felt right and you know I met Les and Les was wonderful with me you know and kind of made me feel at home and I saw in that very much this is what I'd like to be doing I'm not saying in this club or whatever but this is it that is where I aspire to be, playing to an audience that are really knowledgeable, dancers, you know, uh, this great music. And um, that would transpire later down the line, five years later, uh, when I started working at Legend in Manchester, that would be my timepiece, yeah. similar kind of crowd, yeah. predominantly yeah. black crowd, yeah. playing the latest black music. But Liverpool was a bit separate from um, from things in lots of ways, and, and sadly, after Les, he, he went to work for Motown in London, and uh, you know, he went on to a really successful career in the music business, and his loss was never compensated fully. I mean, he was, for me, in many ways, the timepiece, you know. Liverpool then, you know, started to experience, like, racial problems around the time of the riots and lost its way completely. So as far as dance culture goes, there was um, a divide that came from around about late 70s until the late 80s really, when Liverpool finally started to uh, embrace dance culture in a similar way to what Manchester had. And so the other thing was, and I was aware of this through reading Blues and Soul and stuff, where there were DJs like Colin Curtis. He'd come from the Northern Soul scene and he was at a club called Blackpool Mecca, which was huge 
hugely influential. And there was a schism within the Northern Soul scene where Curtis and the, the other DJ there, Ian Levine, started mm. playing contemporary records alongside the retrospective 60s yeah. You know, Northern Soul that, that Wigan Casino was playing, yeah. and the schism was between the Mecca and the Casino. Yeah. The Casino was keeping with, you know, keep the faith. Let's, you know, stick with what we know. Yeah. The Mecca was pushing ahead, and this New York disco style was coming into play. And Colin Curtis made the transition to the jazz funk scene and, and took that kind of train spotted sensibility from Northern Soul to jazz mm. and became one of the along with Paul Murphy from London Colin yeah. Curtis must be deemed you know the greatest jazz DJ you know from, from Britain you know like uh, they were the guys that influenced people like Giles Peterson and, yeah, and things yeah. that go on from there so Colin Curtis uh, and a guy called John Grant and they worked together a lot around that time at a club in Manchester called Rafters and you'd see that advertised in Blues and Soul and, and you know they played all dayers throughout the north and the midlands and so yeah that was that was where I wanted to be I wanted to be on those bills and play in those events and stuff yeah. but there was no I couldn't make that way in from the Golden Guinea in New Brighton. Yeah. So at that moment in time, the possibility wasn't there. And knowing that I wanted to make a proper career out of this, I was open to new ideas. And one of those was when I was 18, I, I, I learned that there were a lot of English DJs working abroad, particularly Scandinavia, Germany, some in France, you know, Austria, Switzerland, these kind of places. And there were agencies out there. And so I ended up going over to, initially I went to uh, Denmark and Norway when I was 18. Well, I found it hard, I got very homesick. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't the lifestyle now where you get a decent hotel and everything and yeah. looked after. And it was stuck in a back room and you were working six nights a week or whatever and praying for your night off almost, <laughs> you know. I mean, there was an enjoyable aspect, but I was down the ladder at the point. Yeah. I, I, I was like on the bottom rung and you know not playing the best clubs and stuff and so I came back after a couple of months and went straight back to the Golden Guinea and carried on there. And when I got to 20 I thought I'll give it another go and I went out this time to Denmark and then Germany and much more now I was on a, a different level with it I was a lot more kind of worldly wise to what I was doing. When I went to Germany um, it was the first club that had um, SL 1200 turntables. No the equipment in Germany was way ahead of what we were we had in the UK at the time the systems were generally like you know nasty tinny kind of they were an afterthought you know like in clubs um, we hadn't got to that era where sound had become deemed important but going somewhere like Germany which was much more technologically advanced it seemed you know like there were things like hi-fi stack systems and stuff that I hadn't seen rich people had them you know but general people had them you know in, in, in. so you know that enabled me to also I went to another club in, in in Essen which was a nearby city I was in a place called Mulheim and uh, Essen was nearby and on my night off I went to a club called Librium and it was an incredible club again they had all these hydraulic lighting and the light controller played off a keyboard like a you know musical keyboard type thing and, and the DJ was mixing and he was mixing between kind of dance stuff and alternative stuff and although I'd come across mixing in 78 I'd gone you know through my contacts in London I'd gone to a club called the Embassy which was it was like um, London attempt at Studio 54 it was you know a lot of kind of celebrities and the, the you know the, the there was a big gay influence there but it wasn't seen as a gay club and there was a DJ called Greg James and he'd come over from America 
and he was a friend of Richie Caxor, who was one of the DJs at Studio 54, and he was the first mixing DJ in the UK. Yeah. And um, so I'd, I'd been there in '78 when he'd worked and heard him play. But like I just said, to do this mixing. We, although we understood now what it was it was running these two records together we just didn't have the equipment we had these belt driven turntables they weren't very speed if you touch them the needle jumped so we weren't set up and prepared for it so that moment kind of passed there was talk about it in I mean Record Mirror was another major James Hamilton who wrote for Record Mirror and he became the champion of mixing you know that he was writing about it back then and so some DJs tried it out but most DJs thought ah, stick to the microphone because it was a microphone based yeah. format then we yeah. announced and back announced records and all that but being in Germany and seeing um, what was happening in this club and I think the DJ was a guy called Peter Roma now you know with hindsight and he's one of the uh, well, I think he's the, the seen as Germany's first mixing DJ and I'm pretty sure it was him because I know he worked in that club at certain points in time and I just thought in the right environment so I, I'd spotted that then and before I'd gone to Germany I'd been in Denmark and I'd had a little I took my car out there I drove out to these places and I had a bump in the car I had a couple of weeks before my next contract started so I decided to go back to the UK change car and come back out but while I was home I wanted to suss out um, some of the other agencies in Europe and a guy I've met in Norway in 78 I met a couple of great guys in Norway Nicky Favell and Paul Ray they were DJs in the same town and they were really sus they'd been on the road for you know a good while and they knew the lay of the land I was this wet behind the ears kid you know 18 year old and um, I rung Nicky's his dad's house to find out where he was where you know where in Europe he was and he said oh he's, he's actually in Wigan he's at this new place Wigan Pier and I thought oh well that's only you know half an hour from where I am I'll go and see him so I contacted him he said come down on the like there was a Tuesday night jazz funk night and I think I went there I went on the Tuesday and this club just blew my mind it was a whole different level from anything that I'd seen in the UK well it's seen anywhere really you know it was the first club in the country to have a laser system it had incredible lights they had a balcony round people used to just stand and watch the lights yeah. I remember and um, the DJ was in this 15 foot high fiberglass frog they had a light controller with them so the DJ actually worked to the side with monitors and the um light controller looked out over the dance floor and everything you know this was amazing and Nicky said to me he was moving on to a new club that the same company were opening in Manchester and this was legend and there was going to be a vacancy for the DJ here and they were running auditions for it and he said you should you know and so I, I spoke to the, the owner there and they were running the auditions the next week and I was going to Germany and it was so amazing that I part of me almost felt like not going to, just to audition just yeah. for the challenge to get this place but that was crazy couldn't happen so I in the end kind of said to the, the, the guy who run the club um, could I if I can make a tape could I send you a tape to show what I do which was kind of unusual you know they like to see and he said yeah okay I didn't think much of it but I got to Germany and I was in as I say this first club that had 1200s and everything and mm. I made my tape and I sent it over to them and I didn't hear anything and I think Nikki in the background pushed away and and all of a sudden I got a phone call and they offered me the job. I, I was just like so emotional about that, you know, because I was, I didn't really want to be away. I wanted to be back in the UK. Yeah. 
but I didn't want to be treading water. This club I worked in, the Golden Guinea, which I loved, as I say, in the late 70s, it had like um, two main floors where music was played. And on the middle floor, or the one when you walked in, the DJ there played all the chart hits and he also DJed between bands that played. You know, they generally played well. So it was for an older crowd. Downstairs where I was in the disco, that was for the younger crowd. And I was able to play my thing. And I remember once walking up and I was stood looking into the other room at the DJ there, a guy called Rob Smedley, who to me at the time seemed really old. He must have been in his mid thirties. Mm. And I knew that he'd been in that club. It used to be called the Kral before that, the early sixties. Jackie Wilson had played there apparently. <laughs> and he'd been there since then. And I remember it occurring to me, this kind of shudder went through me and I thought that could be me. You know, because I'm, I enjoy it, this, you know, and my friends, and you can be sucked in. He's here now, he's been here all this time. And it felt like I've got to come away, I've got to pull myself away from it, you know, yeah. even though I love it. Yeah. It's, well, it's the comfort zone, isn't it? It's the comfort zone, yeah. yeah it's, uh, I had to push myself again. And so, um, you know, that that's where it was. And I, I got this job at Wigan Pier and came to work there. And they had a Tuesday night jazz funk night, which had been really well cultivated by Nicky and a guy called Kelly beforehand. Mm. And he, the club held about 850 to 1,000 you know people I think the official capacity was 850 but they went over that and we put in about 400 or 350 on a Tuesday which was you know mad and these people at the time that crowd was predominantly white uh, and it was made up of you know the regions around like um, Preston they come in from and Warrington and some from Liverpool but not so much Manchester Manchester was covered that was the kind of holy grail there really so it had you know a really good night going but Nicky never did the all dayers or Kelly before I don't think ever did any of those so they were still a little bit separated at the, at the time and so I went to Wigan and that's where I picked up my first all day I was like kind of small name on there in fact they even advertised me as roadshow and sound system which I had no roadshow <laughs> and sound. I think just to kind of give me a bit of a bit more billing or whatever yeah but you know that was my first step and I, I was on the bill with Colin Curtis and John Grant um, at that point. Um, yeah, you know, that that's like you've arrived then. It's like you've kind of, you're not in the Premier League, but you're yeah. certainly, you know, in the, in the, in the you know, Division 2 or whatever it is, or the fourth division. You know, yeah. You're in there and you're building up and you're going up the rankings. Yeah, I mean, certainly, like, everything you read about that kind of history, um, Wigan Pier especially is arguably seen as one of the first kind of super clubs in the UK from, like, playing dance music, people travelling from outside of the area to go to that had an amazing system and a place to play to see the DJs and hear the music and you know it kind of had that you know that flame that all these people would come towards yeah I mean there was a couple of places just prior to it like Angels in Burnley where Ian Levine would work and a lot of disco was played there Mm. Um, and the warehouse in Leeds which was owned by an American and Greg James the guy from the embassy when he'd done six months in the embassy he, he went to Leeds then and you know made an impression there too so the pier but the pier went another level you know yeah. um, just in terms of the sound and light and everything and the way they presented it so so yeah you know it, it was a different environment as I said you know the clubs when I started off you know the sound system was you know wasn't the main thing on the management's mind yeah. you know Whereas the pier, everything was around the sound system and the lighting. It it was 
fundamental. Yeah. I mean, they call themselves, they advertised as top American discotheque, you know. It was very much geared towards what had been happening in New York. It was yeah. taking a cue from that. Um, the people who fitted it, um, you know, there was a company called uh, Bacchus Julianas, and they, and, and Legend, they did as well. I think they were separate and then together at one point, but they did all the Hilton hotels worldwide and stuff, so I think that's how they got persuaded into spending so much. Most clubs would go to a local supplier yeah. and get a few bits they they went all the way you know with this and then legend like took it another stage because it was a more compact club with like a capacity of official capacity i think 450 you know and um, best sound system i'd ever heard yeah first club with sub bass i'd heard lighting you don't see it now I, I couldn't even explain i couldn't tell you people might say oh fabric and you know what what legend had what it was able to do on that dance floor you know you had things like a, a laser that was hitting uh, prisms that were built into uh, a ceiling which also housed the tweeters of the sound system with the mid-range coming round you circling and the sub bass coming underneath you could like also white out this space completely with smoke and just white light they had half a mile of neon in shapes and it was crazy it was wow. like it was this really kind of futuristic environment and uh, what happened there was Nicky started at Legend and it all was hunky dory at first but they had issues there with the music policy what was happening was that the Wednesday night was the kind of uh, jazz funk night which, which attracted the black crowd. But when they opened it, they wanted to gear the weekend at a more affluent crowd who might buy drinks and stuff. And, and, you know, truth be told, the black crowd didn't buy a drink. They didn't have the money. A lot of people just drunk water. They had enough money to get into a club. You know, I always tell this story about Wigan Pier to give an idea of um, the dedication of this crowd who had nothing, but they had to be at these nights. I, I remember speaking to some guys from Birmingham who used to come to Wigan Pier and they were saying to me that the first thing that they did when they got to Wigan to the car park was they siphoned petrol off another car because they only had enough money to get one way down and they needed the petrol to get back and that was it that was the level of it by hook or by crook once you know these clubs had like once these nights became the key nights I mean so Nicky had gone into legend he'd had an issue with music policy with the management to do with the weekends that forced him to resign they then brought in on the Wednesday John Grant who was one of the these big name DJs and you know it was successful on the Wednesday night with, with, with John Grant there but he got poached by a night in Manchester called the main event which was co-promoted by Blues and Soul and Piccadilly Radio so it had like tremendous power behind it you know full page adverts in Blues and Soul and jingles on Piccadilly and all sorts of stuff going on and that opened up and it basically started to wipe out the Wednesday at Legend uh, they'd lost you know a couple of hundred of the crowd and they were like really struggling to keep it afloat in the meantime my Tuesday at the pier had really done well you know I'd, I'd secured it and everything and now it was building and and so they said to me do you want to see how if you can do anything on you know give me a chance to try and save it and it was it was a little bit of an outside shot in one way but the club was so great and, and I just you know it's a dream to work there and it took about nine months but we turned it right round and we did it bit by bit you know I mean the first those first few months I'd be at the end of the night I'd say to you know the manager how many were in 
you know, 97. Oh, God, that's great. We only had 93 last week. And it was a really weird thing because as it developed on, you know, 150 this week, wow, you know, top now, you know. When it got to about 250, 300 people, it closed the other club within weeks. It was gone. The, the crowd completely switched and then you have the start of that classic era at Legend where it was just every week there were queues outside it was full people were now coming in from it wasn't just the Manchester crowd it was Sheffield Leeds Bradford Birmingham Nottingham Huddersfield you know Liverpool people coming in same with Wigan Pier Wigan Pier's audience shifted so whereas it was predominantly white that shifted again to becoming predominantly black and a lot of that had to do with the musical shift at the time and this is yeah what was the music that you were playing at these well when I went in there initially as I say it was still jazz funk it was Mm. the back end of the jazz funk era I was playing you know out and out I would even buy like Japanese digital kind of jazz which wasn't just Japanese artists there was American artists but it was all it's first digital music I ever come across and they're really expensive but certain tracks you just have to have so yeah you know at that point a jazz funk night consisted of jazz funk i.e like i say you know your royers type blonnie listen swift type thing straight out jazz or fusion jazz which was like the faster kind of like sambas and latin american stuff coming into play which was really for the kind of specialist dancers um of which there were many and you know the big soul the big funk the big disco tracks and when i say disco the black side of disco what would later be called boogie that term didn't exist then but it was disco funk you know um, so that was the smorgasbord of different styles that you had where it really changed with me was that um, in 82 as 82 started to unfold certain records started to appear initially tracks like I mean I'd even put D-Train you're the one for me into that even though now because there was so many derivative records it doesn't sound that original when it came out believe me it was that kind of choppy synth and everything Time by Stone, getting more electronic, things like Electric Funk on a Journey, which was on Prelude, as like D-Train was. Mm. And this sound was, Peach Boys Don't Make Me Wait, big one, major moment. And then it really tipped fully into Planet Rock. Yeah. And you're into this electro era. And I'd embraced that and gone with that. And the crowd that I was playing to, which was a, a younger black crowd, were really into that. But the older DJs, they um, turned the, turn their back on it. They, yeah. they felt that this was this machine music that was going to ruin the scene and it had nothing to do with soul or all these arguments were put forward. So I had the perfect environment for this music with this amazing sound system. This was kind of state-of-the-art electronics. It's the last music that sounded like the future, really did sound like the future. And also mixing, now I could bring this into play. So this idea of not talking between you know uh, that you start to kind of string the records together and so that became original there was very few DJs in the country at that point that were seen as mixing the I mean I think Black Echoes listed you know about eight or nine of us you know at that point in time that were taking this seriously and so you know everything was set for me at the right environment yeah the crowd were incredible you know the the level of it the the knowledge of you know the dance you had like from the jazz funk days you had crews um, who would challenge each other so Birmingham would challenge Manchester would challenge Huddersfield would and there was always these like to jazz going on jazz fusion styles and a whole jazz dance scene emerged you know from those things within this wider scene and a lot of those jazz dancers were the early break dancers 
because they had the athleticism to be able to take on those moves. Um, so when that started in 83, you know, we were primed for that too, you know. Yeah. And so this electro-funk direction, as we called it, all of a sudden, you know, like after nine months of me being there, bit by bit building it, the whole thing explodes and I find myself in possession of the two biggest club nights in this half of the country. Yeah and nowhere more up front anywhere than what was going off at Legend and the pier, you know, but Legend was, I think for me, that was, that was the one. People ask me now, mm. you know, what's, what's, what's the greatest club gig you've got? You know, maybe expect me to say, oh, the Hacienda or yeah, yeah. Uh, Space in Ibiza or, and it's not, it's just every Wednesday Legend. It was, I couldn't wait to get there. It was it. It was what it was all about to me. It was the pinnacle. I'd yeah. achieve, you know, there wasn't, there was nowhere else to look. The radio thing with me, I tried to get on radio and I'd nearly got on radio when I was 18. Well, before I was 18, that was my ambition to get on radio before I was 18. I nearly got on Radio Merseyside doing the soul show. Terry Lenane, who was the DJ, was supposed to leave and take over a Radio 1 slot. And as it worked out, it didn't work out. And I didn't get that. And I was kind of, that's when I decided to go to Europe. Yeah. After the radio thing hadn't come off. But... When I was at Legend, Mike Shaft, who did Piccadilly Radio, and it was a massive show. I mean, the biggest certainly outside London. You had Greg Edwards and um, Robbie Vincent doing shows in London. Mike Shaft, these three were the main ones in the country. And he, when he heard me mixing, said, would you like to come on the radio and do mixes every few weeks? They became a huge thing as well. And that, again, brought me out to a wider audience, people that weren't venturing into Legend. I mean, a lot of people wouldn't even know about Legend because unless you read Blues and Soul, or you listened to Mike Shaft's show, or you hung around with black kids, yeah. you wouldn't have known it, you know. Uh, it's a real word of mouth It was scene. an underground yeah. scene, yeah. but a sizable underground scene and it was interlinked with many other examples yeah. you know through the all day circuit and everything yeah. so legend became the predominant club on the sea even though Wigan Pier actually won the awards and I think that Wigan won the awards because it was a readers poll in blues and soul and he, legend was still Manchester Whereas Wigan, which didn't have any black kind of population as such, I mean, f a few people, that, that was more neutral ground. So I think people like, you know, voted for that as opposed to a Manchester club, politically almost. Yeah. But for me, legend. I mean, we, we won in Blues and Soul, top club, second best club, and I got top DJ, you know, for, for, for the North. And, you know, we got a clean sweep of that. And so what had happened in effect, looking at the scene objectively, was that John Grant, who'd gone to this main event, a few months later, had quit DJing altogether and gone to work as a harbour master. Uh, I think, well, that's what he said, a harbour master in, in um, I think he worked with hovercrafts and stuff on the south coast and he'd gone. And that was like, wow. And there was a, like this vacuum left within the scene. And a lot of the kind of second tier DJs were positioning to stand you know into that and and what in effect happened was i came in right through the back door and i was this young upstart i mean i was only 22 when all this was was going on and all of a sudden i had this power and then the criticism started and the backlash because of the music i was playing yeah. and that i was polluting the scene and i you know people were writing this in blues and soul and you know and it was a lot of pressure on this and um and at first i really you know it felt bad because these with people I looked up to and you know um, and my youthful ego wanted a pat on the back and look how well you're doing and instead I'm being told that I'm ruining it for people 
And so at first there was that, but then I, I kind of went on the offensive because I, I looked at my audience and I thought, who are these, what I thought were middle-aged white people <laughs> who yeah. were like, to tell you know this crowd what black music is. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how I, so I took that stance and, uh, you know, kind of toughed it out a bit. Although it was really uncomfortable. But eventually, after a few big political actions with all dayers and things like that, where they, did, you know, one where they said it was a non-electro all day and I wasn't booked for it along with another DJ who'd, who dared play this dirty music. Um, <laughs> but it didn't work because all yeah. the other DJs caved in and played electro tracks yeah, because yeah. the crowd uh, demanded it. And so the battle was over then. Legend, Wig and Pier were top of the tree and <clears throat> everything was uh, hunky-dory, you know, on that, that level. Uh, I worked in other clubs as well around... I mean, I came away from full-time residence at the pier in 82 to um, concentrate on just being a specialist. So I worked yeah. at a night in Huddersfield night in Liverpool, another night in Manchester that I did, you know, alongside the Tuesday and the Wednesday, which was the mainstay. You know, that's where I was at. And then in kind of summer of 83, I knew that Tony Wilson and Mike Pickering and Rob Gretton, who was the manager of New Order, had been in regularly. Because Tony Wilson was a local kind of celebrity, he was on the TV. So they'd obviously checked it all out there and everything and um, I was asked to like do a dance night especially stand tonight on a, on, a, on a Friday there the Hacienda and this is in 83 it's it opened in uh, May of 82 yeah but it was really struggling yeah they were finding it very difficult to get enough people through the doors obviously wouldn't have survived apart from New Order's success that's what bankrolled the whole thing and so I was there on a Friday night for a period of think about three months and it was really difficult because it wasn't set up at all the DJ booth was in a room to the side of the stage that was where you looked out of a slat and saw people's legs and uh, the mixer was above your head so you had to hold your and it didn't have a crossfade. Uh, there was also, I mean, I wrote about all this online, you know, and I also, it, it came out later that the reason the mixer was so wrong was that oh, they had, there was a second part of the mixer that they hadn't bought. Because they, I'd always say, can, can we get, can you, this mixer's awful, this is, you know, I can't. And they're like saying, oh, there's only two in the world, we got it from France and it's supposed to be, a, you know, I'm like, because I'm this mixing DJ now, but I'm working with my hands tied behind my back. And so, my time at the Hacienda was a, we had a few really good nights we had like the first big break dancing and body popping championship there and we had Houdini on who were like uh, had a big kind of track with Magic's Wand and um, Nutriment a British act that we'd be playing big in the club so we had a few one off but generally I remember the Hacienda as being cold and dark you know because I, I did it through the autumn empty you know um, and just so unlike legend which was so right it was so I mean the following year they moved the DJ booth to yeah. the balcony and they never got this the sound was poor in the Hacienda always was they never got it right it was this cavernous space you know it was big and so, so even when you were playing there, there you couldn't necessarily see this kind of explosion coming over the horizon in terms of kind of house music and, oh no well not, like not certainly not with the Hacienda their crowd was like a bit kind of like gothy and studenty and they you know into Susan the Banshees or uh, Bauhaus or you know people sometimes would manage to find me in that room I don't know how they managed to find you know someone come and, and berate me 
you're playing this damn shit for you know they'd ask me for you know something that they like you know like yeah. Sisters of Mercy or whatever <laughs> I don't know you know but it, it, it wasn't it, what they were trying to do there they'd been out to New York because New Order played and a certain ratio played over New York they'd been to clubs like obviously Paradise Garage Loft but the one that they always talked about was Danceteria I can see why now knowing about it because it was more of an art space as well and it was a mixture of kind of alternative and dance and and that's what the Hacienda would they were trying to get that New York thing going there and mix the crowds up so they wanted the black crowd in there they and but they wanted the alternative they wanted all these different factions to come together but at the time never the twain shall me you know it was so separated the it wasn't doing that and so it was very difficult for them to get anything to stick you know on a week by week basis and they just like put bands on or you know like smiths and all these kind of people that were were playing at the time and made them you know what little money they made that way but most of it was just like holes in the pockets it was just leaking out you yeah. know they were losing money hand over fist but over the following years they managed to steady the ship Mike Pickering on the Friday night with Martin Pendergrass first and then on his own and then with Graham Park developed something and it was doing really well before the house explosion so to speak but come 88 and when ecstasy arrived there everything was right all of a sudden this place that was so wrong became so right because it was huge and uh, you know it, it just had the right vibe about it found its moment and there it goes you know we have like a, a world famous club you know yeah. and people all over the world know about it um, but you know as I say my time, <laughs> though, time was, now, was yeah. a little bit different it wasn't uh... one size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on same goes for healthcare that's why United Healthcare offers flexible budget friendly coverage for medical vision dental and more learn more at uh1.com Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So this was kind of 1983. Um, you decided to kind of hang up your headphones as a DJ. Well, that was it. You know, it was at the time I was, I was at the Hacienda. I was a yeah. peer and legend. I'd kind of got to, I mean, there was a few factors to this and it's very difficult to do in a succinct way. You know, the, the, a big thing was breakdancing, which had happened in with a vengeance in the summer of 83. It had first come to light with Buffalo Gals video, Malcolm McLaren, end of 82, which I had a promo of. I was able to show that before anyone had ever seen it. And it was 
it was culture shock to the people that were there that night. That they, you know, I, I went to a club called the Stars Bar in Huddersfield, and it was a Thursday night, and it was kind of rough, raw crowd, but great crowd, you know. But it was, a, it was in one of the places where one of the Yorkshire Ripper murders was off the, you know, in, they wouldn't allow a black night in the city centre of Huddersfield, so it was off the beaten trap. But I did this place for a while. They had a video screen in this place, and I got this Buffalo Gals video from one of the record guys in London I've been up to London and I was like oh my god because there was a man and he was on his head spinning round and we'd never seen this before this was new you know and there was oh, it's just I mean it's, it's the first video with the four elements of hip-hop or four in there and I played it I decided at one o'clock I was going to play it the club was open till two and I played it to the people in there and it was shock and it was like this crowd quietened down and even, I, we still had the microphones, so I grabbed the microphone and said, you know, like, let, so the people at the back can see, can you, you mind sitting down on the dance floor like you're a school teacher? And they all sat down quietly because everything changed with that. Them viewing that, nothing was ever the same, you know. As I've said before, it's like, uh, it wouldn't have been more shocked if, you know, the aliens would have landed and walked in the door. That, you know, it yeah. was. And so by that summer, a lot of people had practiced and practiced and practiced and got these work and these moves. And, you know, one person had a video recorder and they'd sat around and gone over, you know, and, and there was any video that had a bit of breakdancing in, they were just absorbing it. And then it came out on the streets in uh, 83 summer. And in Manchester, a crew called Broken Glass were the first out and took into Piccadilly Gardens. And some of these lads came to legend and made me aware of what was going on. And I ended up in this kind of quasi-managerial role, getting them to do a street tour of the Northwest and going to shopping centers, which was incredible, especially in areas where they had no black population. And the white kids looked at them with like, you know, concern, you know, what's this? They're encroaching on, is this a gang? Is this, you know? And then from a distance, like, watch them wind out this lino and put a ghetto black and start dancing and then come over to them and conversation and what is this and what's this music and this was wonderful you know and it was like when you look at like the world now and the way that things have been going with race relations and everything this was another side of that coin where people were coming together and realizing the commonality and, and within you know the following year like every like kind of shopping mall in the country not just in the black areas was full of breakdancers yeah. it, it, it and the street sounds album the street yeah. sounds electro albums morgan Khan was putting out just became the soundtrack of the ghetto blaster for these kids that were so this was a huge change and what it did on a club level was that in legend now whenever i played electro it was challenges yeah there were groups of lads challenging each other taking up the dance floor it could get rowdy you know the girls were getting a little bit fed up because the dancing space was being so i could feel a schism occurring here which would kind of happen that the hip-hop scene would come out of this and then the, the house scene wouldn't immediately emerge before that from a black side there was more of a kind of street soul direction direction that was for a little while and then these house tracks started to come into that I mean house was just electro but from a different place initially same with techno it was just electro from Detroit we didn't even know it was from Detroit when I played clear by Cybertron in 83 I didn't know that it was a different city it was just another electro track yeah. and yeah. then you you learn you know what's yeah. going on with things and that's the start of these other strands so out of this electro 
era comes hip hop house and techno you know it opens the doors for all three of, of, of these directions but there's a process in between you know like before it arrives at, arrives at that so like and it was the black kids in Manchester that, that brought house to the fore yeah I mean for years I was kind of saying I remember the, the Guardian or I think it was, it was out of the Guardian Observer they were going to do a piece on um, what well, I was I was been talking to a report about the influence of the black community on what happened at the Hacienda but they they wanted photographs about this up and people weren't taking photographs then and we couldn't find photographs apart from a professional crew called Foot Patrol dancing in there and the piece was never written and it was really frustrating at the time to know what had happened yet you can't offer evidence and then wonderfully this video emerged from Mossside Community Centre in, in 86 and I think Mike Shaft's playing there and it's just house you're listening to kids and you're seeing kids dancing to the house and, and so this is this is way before Ibiza yeah yeah it's, you know and so it was the black crowd that brought the house through and it was the fusion dancers like Foot Patrol that applied that style of dancing initially to dancing to house tracks. It wasn't all this kind of hands hands in the air thing then. It yeah. was uh, very much still using foot moves and stuff. And yeah. um, but I'd gone by then. I'd finished, as I say, at the end of '83. I decided, uh, you know, also I wanted to get into record production. I wanted to get into remixing because I'd now discovered, you know, obviously all these people who were remixing these tracks were DJs like T. Scott and Larry Levan, Francois Kevorkian, Shep Pettibone, Jellybean Benitez, Tony Humphreys, DJs. And I thought, oh, maybe I can remix. So I was going to London saying, can I remix a track? And they were like saying, yeah, but you know, it's Americans who remix, you know, it's like, and I was not getting what I wanted. So in the end, I took a kind of um, lateral step and hooked up with a couple of musicians, one of the guys from A Certain Ratio, another guy was in the like post-punk band magazine, and we did this experimental electro album, which came out as UK Electro for Street Sounds, and, um, and so that, that was 84, that was the first year that I stopped DJing, uh, and that, for a moment everything was, was great and looked like it was going well, and then it just imploded and all went pear-shaped, and I found myself kind of stuck in in Liverpool at the time which was really failing badly it was a depopulating city there was no prospects it was like Dick Whittington style down to London and and I was there for a few years and eventually got a deal for the Ruthless Rap Assassins Kermit had come out of Broken Glass the breakdance crew and with Anderson and Carson and the three of them um, we did two albums for EMI and that kind of was a bit of an in-between period but then it you know later on it went into another period of obscurity so you know uh, the 90s for for me was a real struggle of trying to get projects going but <clears throat> not having the the means to to do so um, and so detaching very much from that world not yeah. going to clubs even not so really being that aware. whole kind of house music super club superstar dj explosion during that 90s yep. era was that something that you saw and thought i don't want any part of that at all were you not interested in any of the music well i, was I wasn't even or? thinking of being a dj yeah at that moment in my life I, I, I you know i wouldn't maybe you know i did a few one-offs people asked me to do things but that was all i didn't see myself coming back into it at all at the time um, my thoughts on that were initially you know musically and this comes out of the black scene I was a part of 
it wasn't just one way. It wasn't just that everything was one BPM and in, in a similar style. It was a whole you know spectrum of different things, and that's the way I, I always liked it. That changed with the house scene. That all of a sudden people started to narrow into different areas, and um, and I used to hear this term starting. The DJs talked about a set, and I was like, that's what a band does—a set. <laughs> but now DJs are talking about sets and I kind of realised that often what these they, and this is like after the rave thing this is a, the, the new kind of era of DJing I suppose that by this they, they kind of meant that they practice all week to play a certain amount of records in a certain order do it very expertly it's all fluid and they mix it perfectly and that's what they do they go out and I, I always thought with that well that leaves no room for spontaneity at all and also, if you're going somewhere that you haven't been before, how are you sure that the people there are going to... Uh, you know, there were so many kind of questions to that that didn't sit right with me on that level. And another thing that happened later that was a real eye-opener on a super club level was I went to Cream a couple of times. I mean, you know, I know how important it was and everything for a lot of people, but from my perspective, it was a bit after the Lord Mers show. I'd been to the Hacienda when it was rave central you know and that was now four years previous so like the cream thing was a different thing for me uh, this super club idea you know i was more into the clubs as they were evolving there was a club in Liverpool called the underground that i loved you know which was gangsters and kind of scallies and dodgy people and and john kelly came out james barton came out of that who run cream yeah. you know so 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 cream i only went a few times and i remember one time that i went we went with a friend who was probably in his early 20s at the time and I just went up in the, to the bar area and was chatting and I met someone there or something we were only going to be there for a couple of hours and he went straight onto the dance floor and after those few hours I went and reclaimed him and he come off the dance floor and I said to him you've had a great time haven't you he danced for a few hours there. I thought the DJ was a bit shit. I, I couldn't understand that. I was like so shocked. I was what? You thought the DJ, you've just danced for two hours when. Then I kind of got it. And what it was was that he'd taken his pill. Yeah. He was going to dance regardless. No matter what, yeah. And that's what I saw was happening. And the equation then for me became initially the music was the primary. And then ecstasy came on the scene and it was an enhancer, it enhanced the music. But then the drug became the primary and the music became the secondary and that is how I saw it, was that the drug experience became the first thing and people kind of missing, because music is the drug, you know, music is. And so, you know, it's like something was lost in that, I think, that, um, but then again, there were other places and other scenes that were developing and stuff that was going on at the same time. So. It depends where you are and at what point. And um, but I just thought, you know, the, the kind of dance going overground um, had kind of lost a little bit of its uh, heart, you know, yeah, yeah. in that sense. So, kind of, so that period, you know, no real kind of interest, um, as you said, you know, something else becoming the primary is like a negative thing. Uh, what was the catalyst in two thousand and three for your comeback? Well, that, that resulted from basically being dragged kicking and screaming <laughs> into the 21st century of the internet. 
I mean, I was always a little bit of a Luddite, even though I kind of have a reel-to-reel machine, I look kind of semi-technical. I, was, uh, I wasn't a technical person at all. I had to be shown what to do and then I knew what I could do then. And so I was a bit late kind of getting onto computers, but when I did and I discovered the internet, and, and I discovered that there were all these forums that were talking about dance culture, and some of them were talking about the history of dance culture and there were books that were being written as well. And in these books and in these uh, articles and on these forums, there was a massive gaping hole with regards to the black scene. It was like people understood up to Northern Soul and they understood from rave, but they didn't understand. And one of the things I remember at the time was listening to um, a BBC broadcast about Manchester. And I remember and it was supposed to do with why the Manchester thing happened and all that. And I remember that they linked it directly to Northern Soul, as though it was a direct continuation. Missed out everything else. In reality, the Northern Soul scene was dead in the water by 81. Wigan Casino closed in 81, and it took a while before it revived to any level. And it was in London it revived, you know, uh, eventually. So the rave scene, explodes in 88 so you've got a seven-year gap where there was hardly any real document you know things like the street sound series nobody talked about it it's like how can you not talk about something as important and the amount of sales that those those records had now they they influence those street sounds albums influence that generation who started to make house music like your kind of Mars and S Express and Cold Cuts and they would have come through all this, you know. Um, and yet it was missing and I kind of had a lot of archive material from back then. I had record lists I'd done on a weekly basis. I had all my blues and souls. I had all, so, and I, I wasn't DJing then. Yeah. And I had time on my side and I started to document it and put it down and put it together and make, you know, put everything into a right order. Um, and then it was suggested to me that a website to document this period of time. And so I put it together, which was Electro Funk Route. I mean, yeah. somebody put it together for me, showed me what to do, but the content all went into that. And it was as a result of that, that people started to say, would you do a gig? And, and it seemed then the right time to potentially kind of look at it again. Yeah. Um, and that's how it came. I always had that thing initially that my main objective was to draw attention to the black scene, what had led to it and what proceeded from it. And that was underlying everything that I was doing. And as a result of that, that I came back into DJing and um, one gig led to another. It was very organic at first, you know. What was that first gig like? Manchester, I mean, it was really, it was, looking back at it, it was a place called The Attic in Manchester. I decided to do it. Um, Danny Webb, who worked for Piccadilly Records, approached me and I liked Danny, uh, obviously Piccadilly. And I thought, yeah, this the time's right, let's do it. And, and I would imagine there was only about 90, 100 people there but they were the right people. And people like Ralph Lawson from Back to Basics came over for it and a few other DJs who offered me nights with them subsequently. But also we had the forums at the time, uh, like DJ History, and I remember there being threads on the forums and they were talking about records I'd played that 
you know, I remember I played Goody Goody, It Looks Like Love, that no one seemed to know at the time at all, and um, Voice of Q and a few other things, you know, and people were discussing this, and, you know, it, it was... So it went beyond just the night, and it went then into the forums, yeah, and, yeah. and then within a few weeks I was in London doing uh, a night the Chicken Lips put on, and then I did Low Life, which was a, a night in London. I went to Sheffield... Newcastle and it was just as I was doing gigs promoters from other places were asking me if I'd do uh, and then it, it, it got to a stage where that was 2004 and it, it was just building and building and then I was asked in 2005 if I'd do a compilation of, of edits because again there's the thing I didn't really realise that this re-editing situation had developed and people were editing all the tracks because of the computer technology of course and what was going on although you know like some before that obviously like myself were doing it off tape but I didn't know anything about the re-edit scene in New York we didn't know about that so when I started doing my own edits which were in 84 I did them for radio and the reason I did my original edits was nothing to do with clubs but it was to try and get remix work. And the only way that I thought that they might understand and see what I could, might be able to do is if I did an edit of a track they knew and to show them. So I did Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Chaka Khan, Scritti Politti. If these were all played on radio, but nothing, nothing ever came of it. And then, you know, I'm, I'm on that first night and I played that Chaka Khan edit that I'd done back then that nobody was interested at the time. And all of a sudden people are come, what the hell is this? What's this? What's this? You know, and it's like this edit that I did like years ago and people are interested now. People are engaging within this stuff. And so by default, by complete luck in a sense, I'd fallen into an evolving situation of the edit. And I'm like now somebody who goes back. From a British yeah. perspective, I'm yeah. doing probably the first British re-edits in a sense, you know, back then you know so that set me up there and I'm asked to do an album and all of a sudden I've got an album out created the edit which then takes me into Europe I pick up European bookings I go to the States for the first time and play New York and so it's jumped up a whole other level and that continues to develop through in 2009 is the next big step which was the essential mix the essential mix and and just a crazy thing because I remember being asked, I remember where I was when my agent rung me and said they'd been in touch and asked for it. I was in San Francisco, I was at the luggage, you know, just baggage collection. And um, and then I kind of thought, okay, what am I going to do with this? And it was five years then after I'd started again. And I thought to myself, okay, let's take the biggest records that I've been playing in these last five years and work it around that. Yeah. And so uh, I did that. But I was also aware that Radio 1 had this jingle at the time or this whole thing about in new music we trust. And I kept hearing that thinking a lot of this stuff is old. It's being <laughs> presented in a different way. But nevertheless, mm. I figured I knew I knew I'd done a really good job with it. And I knew that some people would really love it. But at the same time, I thought there'd be an equal number of people that it wasn't their thing. Yeah. So I thought it would be a bit... Marmite for, yeah. for that kind of 
The other thing where I was mistaken as well is I remember, you know, the essential mix being big in the 90s when people used to, you know, say, oh, you know, this is Friday night, I'm going to kind of listen to the essential mix and they tune in religiously to that. It obviously wasn't the same, you know, radio wasn't the same. Radio 1 didn't have the, the, quite that power that in that way that it did then, where people were tuning in like that. But what I hadn't bargained for is that now it was global because of the internet. So, the moment that mix went out, it was going round everywhere. So the next day, all of a sudden, I wake up to just, poof, this thread is so positive. I mean, hardly anything that you could deem negative in there. And that was a complete shock. I hadn't seen that coming at all. And yeah, you know, it, it then becomes a classic. And then it, they, they make it a classic by naming it as one of the 10 that represent the whole you know history of the essential mix and since then i think rolling stone named no as one of the top 25 mixtapes uh, ever and you know so yeah you know it, it was it was unexpected yeah. again and as a result of that that's something again it, i travel the world people know it yeah talk to me about it ask the time about it. the time like i don't think anyone had ever heard anything like it and that's it like completely distilled to that two-hour mix like all of these um different genres and influences and all edited like re-edits that you'd not heard before and presented in such a great package all mixed together i think that was why people kind of responded to it so much no i'm so, I mean, it's because a lot of effort went into it as well because I mean I did was, read your blog piece on it and you were saying that you had 90 tracks yeah. and you kind so of I only used half to re-edit those yeah so I decided even before I started well the tracks can't be any more than about two and a half minutes maximum so I've got to edit all these tracks into a coherent two and a half minutes I can't just have the first two and a half minutes you've got to have the best yeah. bits of the track and, and your mix out point your mix in point so I decided rather than to, to do it as I went along to do it as though I was putting together my pool of records to play and then I would yeah. you know there's certain things would have to be in there other things might have made the cuts and might not have made the cuts so um, yeah so you know that's how I did it and it, you know it was a really intensive process and it took me a you know although not as intensive as the uh, electrospective mix that I did which was the electro tracks from 82 and 83 that I did and that that was the prototype because I did the same thing putting them down to to size but the difference within that and why the electrospective was possibly even more difficult was it had to be those tracks yeah so I had to fit those together whereas I had more choice for the essential mix yeah I mean, and so uh, it's the Essential Mix kind of blew up, you know, across the internet. You've got this huge thread, worldwide fan base now. You're kind of traveling the world, doing all these different DJ gigs. Obviously, you're very big on the festival circuit right now. Do you prefer playing in the club environment or a festival? What's your preference and what do you bring to each kind of style of gig? The festivals kind of feed the clubs in a way. I mean, what I realized early on in the festivals because when I started doing festivals, which was probably, uh, you know, um, around, you know, around about 2007, 2008, I started doing a fair few and then it went more and more and become a mainstay. But at that same time, from a club side, you know, I'm still very much on, on an underground scene. Now this disco thing has become a part of the mainstream, but then it was still, you know, kind of marginal area. What I noticed in the festivals was people would come up to me 
and go, what's this music you're playing? And I'm like, well, it's a bit of disco, a bit of funk, a bit of indie dance, a bit of house, you know, a few contemporary tracks. But it occurred to me that what they saw me as doing, rather than, in a sense, when I said before that we used to draw from a whole spectrum of music, so it was an old way, in a sense. I'm not being one strand. I'm coming from all sorts of places with this. That, to them, was a new idea through a lot of these people who'd just grown up with yeah. it being one way so this idea of it being eclectic or whatever you want to call it really appealed to them and then I'd noticed people in clubs saying to me I saw you at Bestival I saw you at Big Chill and that's how they were coming to so I then began to understand that that was almost like a kind of recruiting ground to bring people into the clubs and the festivals just it fit it, what I was doing the music I was playing that kind of vibe just work really well. Uh, I did um, a couple of years as part of what they call the Invisible Players with, um, it was a Rizzler promotion and they did Big Chill Festival and uh, one of the Scottish festivals. It's an amazing area. It's that, it only held about four or five hundred but it was packed. You know, they had this kind of amphitheatre vibe and we played from this old van um, and there'd always be four of us and like Don Letts was in the first one and Pete Fowler's the artist and you know, and that, you know, I, th I look at that as being where I really made my mark within a festival centre. I felt, yeah, you know, I, I, I have my place, my niche started to emerge within this um, and that's continued, you know, I mean, it's, uh, for many years I've been saying when does this plateau and when does it start going you know and, and fortunately you know it, it it's retained you know and if anything you know you've got now a situation where like I said disco I mean I don't like the term I I, I remember it was all it was discussed on the DJ forums we had this scene that was re-edits based and it was drawn from all these things and there was this famous thread on DJ history called the scene without a name that I put up and said look should this be named from within or should we wait for someone to name it you know people don't know what it is some people People said shouldn't be named. Like we need to keep it secret. Keep it to what this is our thing. Other people, you know, other other suggest wanted to bring it out, but you know there wasn't a name. There, there was nothing there. And then disco comes back. For me, disco is an aspect of it, and, and it's like disco is um, the the term originally wasn't a genre of music. What it meant was the music that was played in clubs and discotheques. Yeah, yeah. It was discotheque music, disco music. So it works as a genre name from that context, as a catch-all name. But later, it became more specific. And so people have impressed, if I say disco to somebody, it yeah. might mean to one person, you know, the Philadelphia sound. Yeah. It might mean to, to another person, you know, John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever, you know. It, it might mean, you know, like really cheesy end of European, Ottawan, D-I-S-C-O, you know, it's got a lot of connotations yeah. put on it. So that was my objection, but in the same way, R&B, they brought that, but in the same way, Electro, they yeah. put another thing to that. It's, people are, you know, so like poor when they come to naming, naming things. But now it is disco, that's yeah. how they, they, they term it. And, um, and it's a mainstay, it's like, it's house techno disco is, is you know you, you, your bass styles as well but but that's what you get in festival that's what people expect yeah. and so I've kind of found my own niche within what I do and um, 
and it fits really well with festivals yeah. you know and not just here anywhere you know I mean I've played festivals in the States and Mexico Australia Japan all these places but you know it's it translates and, and in a way in, a, in, in one respect it's an easy thing in a sense I'm drawing from a history of music I'm drawing from classics and cult classics you know uh, and there's a reason a lot of these tracks are that and it doesn't if somebody hasn't heard that stuff before you know it's quite likely that they'll have a similar response to somebody who heard it the first time many years ago because it's great music the same way that you know classical music continues through just because it was written 200 years ago doesn't make it invalid it's still you know and, and certainly if contextual, you know, like something like, uh, you know, the Blue Danube being put in 2001 A Space Odyssey, you know, it, it's, it's, it's futuristic then. Yeah, yeah. So great music becomes timeless. Yeah. It's and not, what better way to open that door restricted. For, dis- for someone hearing something and then discovery, falling down that rabbit hole of like, oh my God, I, this artist that you played from like the 70s or something, I've never heard these tracks before. And wow, I've just discovered Parliament Funkadelic for the first time or something like and that. And that yeah. is it. That For me, you know, like you said, what, what underpinned you getting back into it, it was wanting to draw the attention to the black scene. And hopefully I've, I've, I've had some success in that direction. I would hope now, if somebody was wanting to write a book about these histories, that that would be a reference point for them now, that they wouldn't lose that reference. You know, in the past, I don't think people did it deliberately. They just didn't have that information to hand. And so um, they did it. What, what, what did you just say then, though, about the... Because um, that was interesting. Just about uh, someone on the dance floor hearing something like Parliament yeah. for the first time. So what does I say? What underpinned it for me before was drawing attention to that period. But once that had been achieved to a level, something else came into play, which is my underpinning more so now. I was in San Francisco when... And there was a friend of a friend, and she was, like, uh, the kid of, like someone from the hippie era and she had that kind of vibe about her and everything and we were in a a club in San Francisco and chatting and she turned around to me and she said you're a bridge builder she explained you know you take this music from the past and you bring it into now you bridge this and I thought that's it that is exactly what it is that my big thing and it's what you just said is somebody comes up to me and says you know what, what, what's what's that record you just played? Royers, for example. Yeah. Royers, okay. And they go home and they and then they discover this, and then they discover other people. And they, yeah. so I I lead them down roads, and it's up to them to take the avenues yeah. off and find it their own way. But the possibility is the, you know, and I'm a big one on letting people know what I play. I, I don't, I'm not one who covers the records up. I want people to know. I want them to, to get that information and find out more about these artists and everything. So yeah, that's been a major part of it for me is, is that realization. And it's a thing, it's an age thing as well. You realize now you're a senior citizen of this. And, and in fact, you know, the, you cannot expect people of a certain age to have any real understanding of the depth of history of what they're encountering. You know, a lot of people now would, they, they, they'd have no idea that techno comes from a black source, for example. They just, they think it'd be European out of Berlin or whatever, you know. So there's a huge passage of time. So if I'm able somehow 
to you know give that because I think once people do get those connections now they have the facility the internet becomes a great thing because you can search and find and all this music's there and that's wonderful and we didn't have that where you know it's a different trajectory to how we went about sourcing our music you know years ago and um, and it's great I mean it has its negative side because it you know the worth of music in a sense is like you know everyone's putting records out and there's so much of it you know so a lot of good stuff gets lost amidst that uh, or undervalued amidst that and everyone's got a record label and everyone uh, do it but you know everyone's got the computer software to make a basic track in the yeah. In the room, crate digging online is not as exciting as crate digging in a record oh, shop. Oh <laughs> no, it's hard because I, you know, even when I, you know, go through on a regular basis to find new tracks, things have been sent to me or what's on June or Phonic or whatever. The, the amount of trudging through, yeah, yeah. and it's not that it's bad. I see it as like a mediocrity uh, in a sense that there's there's a lot of you'd say yeah it's, it's a decent track, but you wouldn't want to. It's not making you kind of do cartwheels or anything and there's a lot of stuff like that you know and I think a lot of it is because you know um, certainly within our side of things you know I used to notice years ago I, I, I still think now that there's a potential for singers if they wanted material in this vein that there's so many things released that were just really backing tracks instrumental tracks that people put together that didn't have any vocal on that need a vocal to make them from being a decent track to a really yeah. good track and you know, there's so much source stuff from like 10 years ago, people putting out stuff that, uh, and I, I found that myself because I want to play contemporary things as well. I want to, you know, I don't want to just be, and the way that I do it, the re-edits works for me. I didn't want to, when I came back into this, I was sure of one thing, and that was that I didn't want to be Mr. Nostalgia playing the golden hits. That yeah, was yeah. not what I was about. And so the edits allowed me to play older stuff in a contemporary fashion and also plug in other things into that to keep keep that kind of freshness to it because I, I thought if I'm going to come back into DJing and I want any longevity out of this I've got to appeal to a younger crowd I, people of my age and 10 years younger they can only go out like once every few months because they've got kids and babysitters to get and, and it's too much for them you know so you can't rely on them for a career and so I was aware of this balance between the past and the present, you know, yeah. and it's like the Revox being an antiquated piece of equipment. I used to work with a laptop, I, I use CDJs now, so it's the balance always, you know, everything that I kind of do, uh, you know, even like when I did Disc Attack Archives series for DJ Magazine, which I focused on a classic DJ, record label, record and club, pre-rave. I like the fact that it was kind of more Zeppelin, that we got Pete Fowler to do images of all the DJs in a more car, to, you know, to keep it, to, to make it, you know, not, not this big all our yesterdays thing. This is still relevant to now. As, as people who get into it is, you know, they get passionate about someone like a Larry Levan and they want to know everything that they played and, yeah. and all this. And, and, you know, it resonates on because it was such a, a special expression in a sense, you know, and what it, the, the, the whole club scene, what it represented, what it evolved to and, and what's been born out of it, which is where we're all at now in a sense. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, I don't want to keep you from your gig anymore, so I've just got <laughs> one more question, really. Uh, you've seen, like, the birth of the electro culture almost from, like, back in the early 80s, and you've obviously pushing forward this amazing kind of eclectic sound, just all-encompassing this whole kind of dance music culture, us as house culture. As What's your kind of outlook in terms of just this as a, a culture and a movement? Well, it, it's people need to release... And that's really important to get away from the, you know, the day-to-day and, you know, the problems and struggles of the life and everything, the work, all, all these things. And that's in its most basic form, it's always been that. And the DJ's a facilitator of that. That You know, say tonight I'm playing, there'll be people in there, you know, had a hard week's work, they want to kind of let go, get out of the head. So, you know, you're responsible in a sense, you know, just to be able to bring the right kind of vibe that um, they require. If you take that to another level, like what was happening somewhere like Legend with the Black Crowd, is it becomes part of life's necessity that these kids in the day to day were faced with poor education, being living in rundown areas, having racial abuse, having the police on the case, getting criminal records for misdemeanours. These were the day-to-day pressures and it was a pressure cooker for those people. They rioted around that time, you know, no wonder. And to dance, to go into a club and let that go, it was a deep thing and again something I often say I hear myself repeating this but it's the only way of explaining it in a sense is that sometimes people will say to me um, they use the term parties now so what were the parties like back then and I kind of go well legend wasn't a party it was more intense than that it was a deeper it was a necessary thing it was part of the being you know that people needed this in their life and somebody who in their day-to-day world has got no nothing going for them seemingly they've got no job prospects they're on the dole they're struggling through because of the way they can dance they have respect on the streets and people nod their heads to them and that's such and such and that's so and so and that that was a special thing to witness and to be a part of and so that's how it works with its optimum on that but through different gradations through that it really is about that it's the same thing it's people wanting to just let go and lose themselves in the music lose themselves from the day-to-day and it's always been the same it's it's got it's nothing to do with now you know it was the same for our grandparents when they went to ball you know big dance halls and you know dancing in couples and stuff like that it was the same for the kids who went to the Savoy in uh, Harlem in the 30s and did all those wicked moves that like you know if you ever look back at that footage you just go wow what were they doing back then you know and so we're, we're just part of a, a much wider tradition than we actually realize a lot of people think it's a more recent thing this culture but you know it's been there a long time and again with the british side of the culture the british are obsessive train spotter mentality that we were looking at black american music back in the 50s kids were buying blues and rhythm and blues stuff and djs in the early 60s were bringing in imports you know uh, and opening the kind of avenues that we were able to plug into later down the line so the history is really important to me there's a whole thing before i ever come along you know so people think i'm kind of ancient at the start of something you know so i'll go back through the century and all that and you can see it it's always there so it's this uh, inner need to let go with people and and you're there to facilitate that to the best of your ability amazing 
<laughs> that's it. That, that's perfect to end that on. Thank nice you one. so much. That was awesome. Let's see how long we've chatted for. <laughs> House culture. Yes, you made it. That was an epic one, but I think fully deserving of the title of our longest episode yet. I hope you learned as much as I did. Greg certainly knows his stuff. I think the DJ world is a richer place ever since he came back to help us connect those dots between disco, electro, house and beyond. Obviously a big thanks to Greg for sneaking us in amongst his hectic schedule and also a big thanks to the guys down at the old Queen's Head in Islington for letting us squat in their basement for a couple of hours ahead of Greg's gig. Also don't panic, as I know we didn't discuss any tracks for our House Culture Perfect playlist on Spotify, but what I have done is thrown in a bunch of the tracks that Greg mentioned, like the pure funk bomb that is Ball of Confusion by The Temptations, Moving by Brass Construction, that's off the album that Greg feels hasn't quite got the recognition it might deserve, but have a listen to that track, as I'm sure you househeads will recognise those vocal samples. I've also added in D-Train's You're The One For Me, as Greg mentioned, a track that is widely regarded as one of the first ever electro tunes. I also couldn't resist adding in the sun-drenched luxury mix of Greg Wilson's own Summer Came My Way, a track that was released on the super weird substance label he founded. And finally, a track you should all be familiar with if you've ever heard Greg Wilson play live, and that's his own re-edit of Psych Magic's Mink and Shoes. These are all on House Culture's Perfect Playlist on Spotify, so please search for that and follow it so you don't miss out on the choices from any of our podcast guests. Don't forget to, if you haven't heard it already, listen to Greg's classic Essential Mix from 2009. You can hear that on his SoundCloud page, and I also highly recommend reading his accompanying blog piece that explains exactly how he put it all together. You can find that on his extremely informative Being a DJ blog over at blog.gregwilson.co.uk. Once you're done there, please support us by subscribing, loving, liking, tweeting, sharing and not forgetting to leave us a review. It could always get you a shout out on a future episode. This time around, I must say a massive thank you to Jamie McEwen, who got in touch on Instagram to tell us how much he loves these podcasts. Thanks, Jamie. Knowing that you're enjoying them makes producing them worthwhile and us at Team HC Smile. And if you've got this far into the podcast and still don't know what house culture is all about, firstly, well done. Secondly, as I always say, we at House Culture are a collective of house music fans who have come together through their mutual love of the beat to celebrate the spirit of house music. What better way to celebrate with us than by hitting up our Instagram feed at housecultureNet or by following the hashtag TrueHouseCulture. And finally, you can reach out to me, Matt Rouse, directly on Instagram at DJ Matt Rouse. Thanks for listening. See you next time. House Culture. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.